In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. On Friday, all of the major U.S. stock market indexes finished the day and the week positive in record territory. The only index not in record territory, but it did make a new 52-week high, is the Russell 2000. The supposed catalyst for Friday's optimism was a better-than-expected report on personal income and spending for November. They were looking for personal spending to rise by 03 following the prior month's uh, flat number. They actually revised that one up to 0.1, positive, and the November number came out at plus 0.5. So incomes rising, spending came in and met expectations of up 0.4. So apparently the savings rate ticked up a bit, but this was better than expected. And I think that caused some optimism on uh, Wall Street, but the markets likely would have gone up anyway, even if that number disappointed. You know, we did get weak data from manufacturing. Kansas City manufacturing number came out for December. It was supposed to be weak at a minus three, but it was even weaker at minus eight. That is the lowest level for this index in four years. In fact, we've had six consecutive monthly declines in the Kansas City Manufacturing Index. And that really is par for the course, right? We get stronger economic data when it comes to people spending money, uh, but we have weaker data when it comes to generating real production, real wealth, uh, goods production, manufacturing, all that data uh, comes out weaker than expected. In fact, we got news on Friday that U.S. Steel is going to be laying off more than 1,500 workers in the state of Michigan. Now, of course, this flies in the face with the fantasy that is being promoted by Donald Trump that the steel industry is back, that the steel industry is booming. He's been talking a lot since he's been elected about the steel industry, in particular about how he saved it and how it's great. But here we are uh, laying off workers, shutting down production facilities. This is a sign that reality is in direct contradiction to President Trump's fantasy. And in fact, the numbers that we got on GDP, we got the final revision to Q3 GDP also out on Friday. And the previous estimate 
was up 2.1%, and that was unrevised. But if you look beneath the surface, consumer spending was actually revised up from 2.8% to 3.2%. So despite the upward revision to consumer spending, the headline number above 2.1 stayed the same. And in fact, even government spending was revised up from 1.6 to 1.7%. But what that means is that the rest of the, uh, the numbers went down. And in fact, uh, the big declines was in home building, inventory accumulation, and net exports uh, were a bigger drag on GDP than had previously been reported due to higher imports. And of course, that is a function of consumers spending money on imports. Business fixed investment was actually revised a little bit better from minus 2.7 to minus 2.3. But the key factor is there is a minus sign ahead of fixed investment. We're also seeing big declines in things like mining and and other non-residential construction all going down. Really what the GDP numbers are confirming is what I've been saying all along, that this is a bubble economy. This is not legitimate economic growth. This is a bubble because the only thing that is driving that 2.1% increase in GDP is consumers spending borrowed money and the government spending borrowed money. So we have an economy that is completely a function of government and consumer spending. This is the opposite of the type of economy that Donald Trump promised when he was running for office and that Donald Trump claims to have delivered. This is not about business. This is not about a boom in manufacturing or in uh, industry or business. This is old-fashioned, pump-primed, excess government and consumer spending. That is what is going on here. Now, meanwhile, now that we've got the final revision to Q3 GDP, we now know for sure that this decade is going to be the first decade, and I don't know how long, maybe ever, I'm not sure, uh, but certainly uh, in the post-war era, this is going to be the first complete decade that the U.S. economy has not had even one recession. The last recession that we had uh, ended in 2009. So we went through an entire decade without a recession. I mean, obviously, we can still have a negative quarter. It's possible that the fourth quarter of this year could be negative. Uh, but that wouldn't constitute a recession because you need two consecutive quarters. Now, maybe we can get the, the second quarter next year, uh, but that would mean uh, officially that the recession really uh, maybe started in uh the next decade, although it is possible that they could somehow go back and revise these numbers down uh, like they did the last time. So I guess it's not completely, you know, clear that there was no recession uh, in the last decade, although it looks likely that that is going to be the case. But even though we had no recession during this decade, it was nonetheless a decade that was defined by extremely low average uh, GDP growth. In fact, many decades that did have recessions, even if you measure the entirety of the decade, despite those recessions, the overall growth rate for the decades was higher than it was for the decade that we just ended. And in fact, this slow growth in the previous decade comes despite the fact that interest rates were lower during this decade than in any previous decade, especially if you relate them to inflation, which, of course, the way the government measures it was very low for this decade, maybe one of the lowest, but real interest rates were negative for pretty much the entirety of the decade. I don't know that that's ever happened in a previous decade. So we had massive monetary stimulus during this decade, yet despite that, we delivered mediocre to low overall economic growth. The same is true for fiscal stimulus. We've never had so much deficit spending in a decade. I mean, massive every year. 
trillion dollar deficits, although some years uh, under Obama, we, we had less than that, but massive deficit spending every single year. So they threw the sink at this economy when it comes to Keynesian stimulus, monetary and fiscal, and they were not able to deliver uh, above average uh, GDP growth. In fact, very below average growth. And again, I don't even believe those numbers because I don't believe the inflation numbers. I think inflation has been understated throughout the entire decade. And because inflation has been understated, by definition, growth, which nets out inflation, has been overstated. So I think that the real GDP growth for the decade is actually lower uh, than the low numbers that they are reporting. And that is a primary reason why the Donald Trump 2016 campaign was so successful because he was being honest about the lies that were being told about the supposed recovery and how good the economy was. Well, the people that were living in the real economy instead of that fantasy economy knew that that was a bunch of BS. And Donald Trump heard their pain and promised to do something about it. He promised to drain the swamp and make America great again. Of course, he delivered on none of those promises, uh, yet people want to pretend that he had. In fact, one of the big events, or maybe two of them, uh, that happened during the week was that the Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate, passed two spending bills, big budget-busting spending bills, that Donald Trump is eager to sign. The first one was a $738 billion defense authorization bill, right? And Donald Trump keeps bragging about how much money we're spending on defense and, you know, but we don't have all this money. What Donald Trump should be doing is making the Defense Department leaner and meaner. We should be cutting out wasteful spending in the Defense Department, not finding ways to spend more money, especially when all this extra money that Donald Trump is bragging about spending on rebuilding the military, all of this money has to be borrowed. And I would argue that bringing the nation deeper into debt is a greater threat to our national security than whatever threats are being diminished by building uh, the military even stronger. So he is making the nation weaker, not stronger, by going deeper into debt to spend more money on defense. But of course, in this bill, in order to get the Democrats to go along with the bill to spend more on warfare, well, they had to agree to spend more on welfare. And that's what happened. There's all kinds of nonsense that is stuck in this bill, one that actually stands out and one that President Trump actually is proud of because his daughter uh, was one of the big leaders in this. And this is 12 weeks of paid leave for all government non-defense uh, employees. So if you work for the U.S. government now and you have a kid or you have some reason that you need to take care of your kid, you get 12 weeks, right, three months of paid time off to hang out with your kid. Now, of course, every single government worker is going to avail themselves of that leave, right? And probably most government workers, right, have kids, and so they're going to take this leave. So this is going to increase the cost because we're going to have to hire part-time people or whatever they're going to have to do to cover the gap uh, as all these workers are taking three months off, maybe every single year. I'm not even sure if there's a limit to how many times you can you can put in for your 12 weeks of paid leave, but maybe you could do it every single year. And of course, government jobs are already very cushy jobs. I mean, number one, it's very hard to get fired once you're in. I mean, even you know, no matter how incompetent you are at your job, uh, you're probably not going to get fired. Uh, but now, not only do you get overpaid for, you know, not that uh, challenging work, but now you get all this time off. I mean, people in the government, I think on average, already earn more than people in the private sector, which is ridiculous. But now, not only do they have all the job security that comes along with a government job, not only do they get more uh, pay with a government job, but now they get 
all this time off. They get all this time to take vacation. So this was stuck into this thing. Uh, this is a, a disgrace as far as I'm concerned. You know, also included in the Defense Authorization Act was funding to create the Space Force. And remember, I joked about the Space Force as a new branch of the armed services when Trump first mentioned the idea. I said it was ridiculous that we would be launching an entire new branch of the armed forces. Uh, but now we have it. We have the Space Force. It's now official. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, the Space Force is likely to become a black hole into which taxpayer money will be sucked in in ever increasing quantities for uh, the rest of time. So now we have the Army, right? We got the Marine Corps, we got the Navy, we got the Coast Guard, we got the Air Force, and now we got the Space Force. I mean, why they couldn't just incorporate the Space Force into the Air Force? I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? You're flying around. A lot of these planes get pretty high in the atmosphere anyway. Some of them probably uh, get high enough to, you know, continue you know, to count as being in space. It's pilots. It's the same thing. I mean, certainly it could have been included, but no, they want to create an entire new branch, which is going to be far more expensive because you're going to have all this extra administration that's going to go along with it. So it is a complete waste of money. You have Donald Trump is a big spender. He is a big spender when it comes to uh, warfare. He is a big spender when it comes to welfare. And the other bill that was signed or was passed by the Republican-controlled uh, Senate, right? The House, of course, the Democrats had already agreed to do this, was a bigger, like an omnibus, $1.4 uh, trillion spending bill that the president is also eager to sign. You know, this averts a potential government shutdown, and it is full of all sorts of pork barrel spending uh, put in there by both Republicans and Democrats, uh, that Donald Trump is going to sign. And this is all a disgrace. I mean, if people remember, particularly Republicans, right, if Republicans look back at the time when Obama was president and we sent the Tea Party to Washington in 2010, that's the year that I was trying to go to the Senate was in 2010. But we had a Tea Party wave that swept in a lot of Republicans, just not me, uh, but others were, were brought to Washington. And it was to, to, to clamp down on spending, to put an end to runaway deficits under Obama. And of course, we were still in a recession. But even in a recession, Republicans were opposed to deficit spending to try to stimulate the economy out of that recession. That's what gave birth to the Sea Party. That's what sent a lot of Republicans to Washington. It was to uh, stop the spending. And there was supposedly some progress. There were some bills that the Republicans forced out there to somehow safeguard and limit future deficit spending. Well, all of that is gone. Whatever progress any Republicans claim to have made has all been lost. We have surrendered any gains that we had. And what's amazing is that the very Republicans who were part of the Tea Party are now big supporters of President Trump. Yet they opposed deficits during a recession, right, which was normally when people think they're okay. They opposed those. But now that we're running massive deficits that are even bigger than those, when there isn't a recession at all, when you have a president claiming it's the greatest economy, hey, not only in the history of America, he's now claiming we have the greatest economy in the history of the world, that the U.S. economy today is stronger and better than any economy that has ever existed in this country or any other country since the dawn of time. Right. Well, if that is the case, why aren't Republicans opposed to running deficits now? Right. If we're going to have deficits during the greatest economy ever. Well, when are we ever going to have surpluses? How are we ever going to put an end to the debt if we can't even do it when times are great? Because we can never do it, of course, when times get bad. And if they're great now, of course, at some point they have to get bad. Look, this 
is a real seminal moment here in the history of the Republican Party. Because as far as I'm concerned, the Republican Party is actually dead, at least the modern version. You know, there has been many iterations. The parties have changed. You know, at one point in time, you go back uh, before Roosevelt, um, the, the Democratic Party was really kind of the party of small government. You know, look at uh, a Grover Cleveland, one of my favorite presidents ever. Uh, was a Democrat, and this guy was a really a small government guy. The Republicans were the party of bigger government because they were the party of tariffs, some protectionism. So a lot of businesses were seen as, hey, we want the Republican Party because they favor business, but the Democratic Party favored the, the individual, the consumer, because it wanted government to be small. Roosevelt kind of changed that and, and, and made the Democratic Party the party of, you know, government programs. And then the Republican Party, uh, you know, uh, went in the opposite direction. But, you know, in modern times, the Republican Party has been associated with less government, right? Less government spending, fiscal responsibility, right? We want lower taxes, but to have lower taxes, we want less government. That's been the modern day Republican Party. Uh, the modern day Democratic Party has been government programs. The government is going to spend money on this or spend money on that. And of course, we're going to have higher taxes, particularly on the rich. Uh, so we can pay for all the things that we want to give to the middle class and the poor. Well, that Republican Party no longer exists. Donald Trump has killed it. And the amazing thing is nobody is mourning the death of that party. Everybody is happy to see the old Republican Party dead. Right? Well, that party is dead. Long live the new Democratic Party. Because thanks to Donald Trump, the Republican Party is the Democratic Party. That's what it is. It's what the Democratic Party was. Donald Trump is a Democrat. Right. He wants big government. Right. Now, he had to get Republicans to vote for him. So sometimes when he gives speeches to Republicans, he acts as if he wants small government. But that's because he's playing to the crowd. Right. He's marketing. He's selling his uh, Trump stakes, the greatest stakes in the world. He knows what the audience wants to hear. So the Republicans have been played by Donald Trump, who is the ultimate rhino. That's what he is. He wants big government. He wants government to be big when it comes to defense. He wants government to be big when it comes to welfare and domestic spending. And he wants to pay for his big government by printing money and running big deficits. And he's also advocating for more inflation. He is, you know, he is browbeating the Fed. He is tweeting almost every day saying, print more money, do more QE, cut rates. We don't have enough inflation. Inflation is low. We want more. So this is the new Republican Party. Big government, big deficits, easy money. You know, that sounds like the Democratic Party to me. So we have two Democratic parties. We have the Democratic Party that calls themselves Republicans, and we have the other Democratic Party. Although since the Democratic or the Republican Party has actually moved so far to the left, that is actually helping to push the old Democratic Party further to the left in order to differentiate themselves between the new Democratic Party that used to be called the Republican Party. So in effect, the old Democratic Party is now the Socialist Party. So that's basically the political spectrum in the United States. The two parties that we now have to choose from, Right, the lesser of the two evils that we have to vote for when we go to the polls now, and a lot of this is probably due to Donald Trump, is we can either vote for the Democratic Party or the Socialist Party. That's it, right? Because none of the other candidates are going to be viable. So those are our choices. So if you think or if you thought we had a bad economy before, if we had a problem with big government and big deficits, those problems are now getting a lot worse because there is no more break. There is no Republican Party uh, to push back on any increases in government spending. Uh, so government's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to keep on growing like a cancer. And the only discussion is going to be about how much faster government grows and how much bigger the deficits get. No one's going to talk about shrinking them. No one's going to talk about fiscal responsibility. All of that is dead. And again, it's amazing to me that nobody cares. I mean, other than me, I don't know who is talking about this, right? Everybody is still uh, under the delusion that somehow what Trump is accomplishing is a good thing, right? That, oh, he's this great president uh, and, you know, not that he should be impeached. 
And what he's doing wrong has nothing to do with holding up aid to the Ukraine. I couldn't care less about that. I'm concerned about the big picture stuff that is going on on Trump's watch that is really undermining not only the economy and the country, but the very party uh, that Donald Trump is leading. And the party is happy that Trump has led them in this direction. And they don't even realize it. Of course, the Fed's balance sheet is continuing to expand. QE4 added another $41.6 billion to the Fed's balance sheet in the most recent week. That brings the total now up to $4.137 trillion and counting. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve claims that this is not quantitative easing, but more articles that I read Most of the people in the private sector, including most of the Wall Street economists, are now officially calling this QE4, right? I was the first one to predict that they would do it. I've been predicting it for years that they would come back to quantitative easing. But now most of the other economists on Wall Street are of the opinion that what the Fed is doing is QE, regardless of what they want to call it. Now, again, you know, they try to claim the difference between what they're doing now and what they did in the past is, well, in the past, we actually had an official program of QE, and so now we don't have an official program. Well, maybe they don't, but they're doing it anyway. The other distinction without a difference is they're talking about the maturities. So they're like, well, you know, we're buying shorter-term maturities. Well, for now they are, but what difference does it make? doesn't matter what maturities they are. In fact, they initially, when they first did QE, they were doing shorter term. Then when they did Operation uh, Twist, they started uh, doing more of the longer term. But, you know, they've been buying uh, maturities, you know, all sorts of durations during quantitative easing. But, you know, it started in the repo market where there's a lot of short term debt. And so that doesn't mean it's going to just be limited to those repos. Oh, by the way, you know, a lot of people, I I see comments uh, on the on the. YouTube videos or I get emails, you know, what are the, what is the repo market? I'm not sure if I've ever explained what the repurchase market really is. And that's when they say repo, it's a repurchase agreement. But what it is, it's an interbank market, right? Because you've got a lot of banks out there uh, that have reserves that are held in treasuries, right? That's where banks keep their reserves because they don't have to take a haircut on treasuries and they can earn some interest. So you have banks that are keeping excess reserves in treasuries. Now, sometimes banks need more liquidity than they have. For whatever reason, they need money. And so what they do is they go to other banks to borrow the money. But the way they get the money is they take some of their treasuries that they own anyway, and they sell them to other banks that have excess cash, right? And those other banks buy those treasury bills with that excess cash. But the bank that sold it has an agreement to repurchase those bills at some point in the future. And so the Uh, Banks that need cash get cash, and the banks that have excess cash find a way to earn interest on the excess cash. That is the market. And, of course, what happened is it all blew up because the banks that needed money couldn't find other banks with extra cash to lend it at the rates that were prevailing. And that's when the interest rates really started to shoot up, and that's when the Fed panicked and came in and supplied all that credit. So the Federal Reserve began buying all these bills, and so its balance sheet has been growing and growing and growing. It's never going to stop. The Fed is not going to reverse this because the minute it tries to shrink its balance sheet, it is now contracting money supply, and it's going to be taking air back out of the bubble which it already realizes it can't do. So even if it started in the repo market, this is going to continue. The Fed's balance sheet, I mean, there may be some weeks where it goes down by a small amount for whatever reason, but the trend is now up. The balance sheet is going to keep on growing. It's not going to take long, maybe only a few more months before we're back above the $4.5 trillion point, which is where we started to shrink from. Right. So we're going to be at all-time highs. So all this is going on, and... The markets don't care about it, right? But this is massive spending. We get huge budget-busting spending bills coming out of Congress that are going to be signed. We get the Fed continuing to print money. This, as far as I can tell, this is the most reckless combination of monetary and fiscal policy in the history of our nation. It is more reckless than anything that took place under Clinton, 
under Bush, under Obama. It's happening under Donald Trump, and the Republicans couldn't be happier. That is what really is so frustrating about this whole thing. One thing, though, that I did read about where the government is talking about relaxing uh, some regulation, and that has to do with my industry and the securities industry, where I read that it's either FINRA or the SEC are looking into relaxing the rules that restrict private placement investments to accredited investors. And of course, an accredited investor is an investor that has a particular net worth, uh, a particular amount of income. It's basically a million dollars in liquid net worth. Now, that hasn't changed, I think, since the 80s. So, uh, you know, it's easier and easier now to be an accredited investor, especially when you have such an inflated stock market. A lot of portfolios are now high enough that people could have enough liquidity uh, to be accredited. Also, if you earn 200000 a year in income, and again, these are the figures that have been around since the 80s. I mean, they haven't changed since I've been in this industry. So clearly, inflation has brought the bar down. Uh, but the government has always said that in order to invest in uh, early stage private placements that are very risky, you have to have a certain level of sophistication, which according to the government, uh, you, you attain because you have a higher net worth or a higher income. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you can have some pretty smart people who understand a lot about the markets and risks who are younger, who haven't quite uh, reached that level of net worth. And there could be a lot of people who are older who made money and have some money, but don't know anything really about the markets and maybe aren't even in as good a position as younger people who have less of a net worth uh, to evaluate these opportunities. But nonetheless, if you if you didn't meet the criteria, you were banned legally uh, from investing in a certain opportunities, even if you wanted to. And I never uh, agreed with that. I always thought it's none of the government's business. If somebody wants to gamble, if somebody wants to invest in something that has a lot of risk, the government isn't there to say you can't do it, right? As long as there's no fraud involved, right? I'm, I don't believe that businesses or companies should be able to defraud people into making an investment. No. And if somebody defrauds you, you know, you could file a suit against that. But if somebody is upfront with you and says, look, here's an investment opportunity. It's extremely risky. You can lose all your money, but here's what we're doing. And, you know, if we do this right, right, this thing could go way, way up. Why should the government tell somebody, no, you're not rich enough uh, to put some money in it? Right? If some if somebody is 24 years old and they have 10 grand and they want to take a flyer on something that they think could turn into a million dollar uh, or multi-million dollar windfall and they're willing to throw away the 10 grand, especially because they know, hey, I'm a young guy. If I lose that money, I'll make some more. Right? I got my whole life ahead of me. I want to get in on this opportunity. Who is it for the government? Why should the government come and say, you can't do it? Now, of course, you know, part of the problem is that they make it so easy for people to sue when the investments go bad. And I also think that's wrong. I mean, if you knowingly invest in something that is speculative and then you lose your money, you shouldn't be able to go and sue the broker and say, well, I didn't realize it was so speculative or, you know, you really shouldn't have let me do this or all kinds of reasons that people come in uh, to sue their broker. No, you know, if you knowingly go into a speculative investment, uh, and you lose, then th that's it. That's how it should be. Now, if you don't think it's speculative, if you're lied to and you're told, oh, no, this is super safe, you can't lose your money, well, that might be a different story. But that's usually the, not what happens. Investors are told how risky it is, but then when they end up losing their money, then they have second thoughts and they decide to, to sue their broker. So the whole thing should be cleaned up where anybody can invest in risky investments if they want to. It's not up to the government. And, and, if, and, and if you lose, you lose. Right. You can't. It's not heads. I win tails. You lose. Unfortunately, that's how it's been in the securities industry. But now, you know, the government is looking into, you know, relaxing that, which I agree with that part of it. I mean, they should have done it a long time ago. I mean, I had a lot of private deals that we've done in the past. I mean, my subprime short uh, was a private placement and the vast majority of my clients who wanted to invest couldn't do it. Because they, they weren't accredited. And then the ones who were accredited, you know, we had to have very high minimums because there's rules to even, uh, you know, how many people we could put in a partnership. Uh, and so, you know, all these government rules prevented a lot of people from shorting the subprime market with me. And, of course, they would have made a lot of money 
had they been allowed to do it. Now, of course, you know, we've had plenty of private placements uh, that lost. I mean, we've had private placements that went to zero, right? Where people, so in that, in those cases, you know, people were prevented from losing money, but you never know until after the fact. In fact, one of our private placements that's doing really, really well right now is a company called Acorns. We did the seed round, the series A round of financing for Acorns, right? The very first money they raised, I think it was like three to $4 million. All that money came from me, right? I raised it for them. And it was very risky, obviously. It was a startup company. They had no revenue. They just had a business plan. You know, now it's a much, you know, bigger company. I mean, um, CNBC recently bought a stake or NBC. I see their commercials running all the time. Um, And at some point, likely acorns will come public. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Things could go wrong, Uh, but the stock might be able to go public. And if it does, right, uh, my clients who got in early on at the ground floor are going to make a lot of money, many, many times their money, maybe 20 times, maybe more uh, their original investment. But the people who didn't have a high enough net worth at the time that we did the acorns, even if they thought it was an interesting idea and they wanted to invest, we had to say, no, I'm sorry, the government won't let you do it. Now, once they go public, right, once it's traded on the the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, then anybody can buy it. Of course, by then, the stock's going to be far more expensive. It's not going to have anywhere near the upside potential that it had early on. And in fact, by the time it goes public, it's probably going to be a lousy investment. It's probably going to be way overpriced like all the other IPOs. But then as far as the government's concerned, you can buy as much as you want, right? If you wait till all the profits are made by the guys who get in early, if you wait until it goes public, right, when it's really expensive, well, sure, then you can buy all you want. So it never really made sense, especially the way the IPO market has been working recently. I mean, back in the past, before the bubble, When a stock did go public, it was usually vetted, right? In the early stages, the company was losing money and it was very risky. But by the time it went public, it had a history of profits. So a lot of the risk was gone, right? The investment was de-risked. But nowadays, companies are going public while they're still losing money. In fact, when they're going public, they're losing a lot more money than they used to lose when they were still private. So what the government is actually allowing the small investor to buy, in many cases, is far riskier than what they're forbidding them to buy. And the upside potential isn't nearly as great. When you buy the stock that's losing money that's public, You have far less upside than when you buy it in the early stages, but you still have the same downside. The stock could still go to zero. You could still lose all your money. Probably the only difference is the liquidity, right? If you buy it in a public market, you can sell it whenever you want on the way down. So you don't have to lose everything. You could could bail out at some point along the way. But when you get into a private placement, there is no liquidity, so you're kind of stuck. The money is tied up. So it's more of a liquidity issue. Uh, than, an, than, than an absolute risk issue. But again, you know, the government never should have been in the business of telling people what they can and can't invest in. You should invest in whatever you want. If you know the facts, you make a decision. If you make a bad decision, that's it. You know, that's life. That's how everything works, right? You're, you're, you are responsible for your decisions. If you make a good decision, fine. And a lot of times you can make a good decision and the investment doesn't work out. Because most speculative investments don't work out. That's by definition. It's like if you go back to uh, you know baseball analogy, look at Babe Ruth, right? He, he hit the most home runs, but he also hit the most strikeouts, right? You're not going to hit a lot of home runs unless you really go for the pitches. And when you really swing, right, you're going you're gonna to strike out, right? So if you're going for the home run in the investment world, if you're going to buy a lot of ground floor companies like Acorns, like for every acorns that succeeds, we you know you do other placements that go to zero. So what happens is you have to make enough money on the ones that work to cover the losses on the greater number uh, that don't work. But what is interesting to me though is why now, right? Why is the government now saying, hey, we're going to let anybody buy anything that Wall Street wants to sell, right? To me, the timing. Uh, is indicative more of a market peak, right? Because by the time they're letting the small investor participate in these deals, 
there's probably very little upside. I mean, the market is already blowing up, right? The angel investors are losing money. These unicorns, you know, are being exposed. So maybe they need to basically lower the bar because they're running out of sophisticated investors who will buy this crap. And so now they're like, okay, let's, you know, let's finally let mom and pop in. So to me, the timing of it, it's not so much that Trump is a big deregulator because he's actually not. Just like he's not, you know, cutting government, he's making government bigger. He's there isn't this big wave of deregulation, uh, but this would be some deregulation. It's not going to be enough. But the timing to me looks more like, you know, a hail mary. We got to get more buyers for this crap. Uh, so let's let the small guy in. So it, my advice would be not to participate in any of these deals. Wait till the future when maybe the opportunities might actually. Uh, be greater. Right now, I think it's more of an opportunity to lose your money and a sign uh, that the valuations are rich and we're near a peak. And this is when they're finally uh, letting the little guy have a taste, you know, when all the big guys have pretty much had their full and, you know, there's nothing but crumbs left anyway. Switching gears a little bit, I want to uh, remind everybody of the special podcast that I did, my interview with Joel Gilbert regarding his film on the uh, Trayvon Martin race hoax exposed. So if you haven't taken the time to watch my interview with Joel, uh, go back and do it. I mean, definitely watch it. And more importantly, download uh, his film, uh, the TrayvonHoax.com. You got to see that documentary. A lot of people have already seen it. I'm looking at the feedback, and there's a lot of positive reviews. People are extremely impressed uh, with the movie. Nobody has been let down. No one is like, hey, Peter, you know, I paid three bucks to rent this movie, or I bought this movie. It's a waste of money. Everybody thinks it's great. They are thanking me for opening their eyes. They're thanking Joel for doing the film. So if you haven't already uh, watched it, make sure and watch it. You can start off by watching my interview uh, with Joel, or just watch the film first. Go out and watch the film, uh, the documentary, and then watch my interview. Uh, and, of course, you can also order the book. I got a copy of the book on the way, uh, so I'm going to be reading that book uh, shortly. Oh, by the way, too, while I'm talking about films, I want to remind people about the Bubble movie. Uh, you know, I just put up a a video on YouTube that was a Q&A that was hosted by Liz Clayman when the film premiered in um, – in New York City. And so that Q&A is up on my website and there's a lot of discussion. We've got the producer, we got some of the other people uh, that were in the movie that were there. So it's a really good discussion about the movie. So you can watch that. That's free. That's up on my on my YouTube channel. But after you watch that, go to letusdisagree.com and buy yourself a copy of the bubble movie. I forget how many people have bought it. I got some feedback uh, a few days after I first promoted it, and we had gotten about 500 people who had bought the movie. I'm not sure how many have bought it now, but everybody needs to go out and buy a copy of that movie. You know, you just got to own it, not only so you have it, but so you can share it with your friends. In fact, it's a great stocking stuffer. Get it as a Christmas present. It's going to open the eyes of a lot of people, a lot of liberals. I know a lot of us have friends that we have political arguments with because they don't know why we had a financial crisis. They think that shows that capitalism doesn't work. No, it shows that government doesn't work, that socialism doesn't work, that central planning and central banking doesn't work. It is a great, great movie. Everybody needs to buy it. Right. And I know a lot of uh, people are used to free content on the Internet. Hey, they don't want to uh, get anything that isn't free. And, you know, yeah, my podcasts are free. Right. I don't charge anybody to listen to my podcast. So, sure. But you know what? You got to spring for this movie. Cough up the money. It's well worth it. And, you know, if you like this type of content, this is what capitalism is all about, because the producers of this movie raise some money from investors, right? That's what people do in the motion picture business. They raise money uh, to produce films, right? Well, if this film loses money, it's going to be hard for the producers to make more films or other conservative producers. If conservative movies, movies that shine a light on big government and that advocate free markets, if they can't make a profit, that means there's no market for those movies and they're not going to be produced. 
right? So if you want more movies that portray government in the proper light and that extol the virtues of free market capitalism and sound money, then when somebody makes a movie about that topic, you got to buy it, right? Because then if the the production makes money, if the investors get their money back and maybe they get a little profit, right? Then it's like, oh, great, let's invest in another free market movie. What else do you got? We want to build a track record of movies that are aimed at educating the public on free market capitalism and exposing the lies of the socialists and government, we want those films to make money. Because if they make money, we're going to get more of them. That's how capitalism works. See, the liberal movies make a bunch of money. Look how much Michael Moore makes on his nonsense. Whatever he comes out with, the liberals are lining up to, to buy it. right? So there's a market for a bunch of socialist propaganda. We need to show uh, investors and filmmakers that there's a market for free market oriented uh, uh, films as well. Films that show capitalism in a positive, not a negative light. So I want this film to be a success for a lot of other reasons. And, you know, I just want to get the message out there. So if you if for whatever reason you haven't bought it because, hey, it's not free and I just want to get free stuff, buy it. You know, it's worth the money. And it, the message that it's sending is the market, we like these kind of movies, make more of them. That's what we want. Now, one comment, too, I wanted to make going back to the, the movie on uh, uh, Trayvon Martin. I noticed that, you know, when I read the comments, one of the comments that I specifically wanted to deal with is the idea that none of this stuff matters, even if uh, Trayvon Martin did attack George Zimmerman. He threw the first punch. He sucker punched him. He jumped on top of him and beat him even if all that happened, that none of it would have happened but for the fact that uh, George Zimmerman profiled Trayvon Martin, right? That the reason that Trayvon Martin was suspicious to George Zimmerman was because he was black and he was in a hoodie and, and that it was his racial profiling that made him look suspicious. That's the reason he got out of his car. That's the reason he called the police. And, of course, that set off a chain of events. And it had, had it not been for Zimmerman's prejudice, right, for Zimmerman's uh, profiling of Martin, then Martin would still be alive and nothing would have happened, right? And, and so, therefore, it's, it's Zimmerman's fault for the racial profiling. And that is a bunch of BS. Even if Martin was racially profiled by Zimmerman, it wasn't because Zimmerman is a bigot or Zimmerman is a racist. He's not. He he mentors young black kids. He fought. He led a campaign uh, to get justice for a black person uh, that was wronged by a white police officer. So he's not a racist. But it's very possible that Martin being black is one of the reasons that Zimmerman was suspicious, but that is not racism. You see, the community that Zimmerman lived in had been victimized uh, by criminals. There is a lot of break-ins, a lot of thefts, and according to witnesses who had observed the thieves, they were black males. Right. So you have a predominantly white neighborhood and there have been some break ins committed by black males. Right. Now, now that you know that. Right. So if you're on a neighborhood watch and you see a young black male acting suspiciously, well, that fits the description of who has committed robberies in the neighborhood. So it wasn't simply because um, he was black, because if it was a black woman, uh, Zimmerman might have said, well, that's a woman. The robberies have been committed by men. So maybe maybe I don't need to be suspicious because we're looking for black men because black men are the ones who were committing the robberies. Right. And Martin, according to Zimmer, was just standing around. Uh, it was raining and he wasn't making any effort to kind of get out of the rain. So that was kind of suspicious. But he was a black male. Uh, and that's who had been uh, robbing the uh, the neighborhood. So. That is not some type of racist profiling. That is simply judging people based on fitting a description of a, a suspect, right? When police, you know, come to somebody who's been a victim, right? Let's say somebody has been um, raped and they're going to say, okay, give me a description of 
the guy who raped you, right? When they ask for a description, they don't say, look, I want to know, you know, the, the height, I want to know the build, but don't tell me the race. I don't I don't know what the I don't want to know the race of the person that raped you because I don't want to have to profile anybody. I mean, right, that's a bunch of nonsense. Of course you want to know if somebody raped you, if the person happened to be black, right, who raped you. You want that information because now the police know that when they're looking for suspects, they don't have to look for white people. They don't have to look for Hispanics. They don't have to look for Asians. If the person tells you, I was raped by a black man, then if you're just looking for black men, that's not racial profiling, right? Because the person was raped by somebody who's black. Now, if I happen to be black and I get stopped by the police who are looking for a black guy, I can't get mad at the police for profiling me. I mean, I should be mad at the black rapist who actually committed the crime. He's the reason that I'm suspicious, not the police. The police have a description. Look, let's say the person who is raped says, look, I was raped by a tall, skinny black guy. All right. Well, if they see a short, fat black guy, they're not going to stop him, right? Because he doesn't fit that description. Right. But if I see a tall, skinny guy and then is he, oh, you're profiling me based on my height. You're profiling me based on my weight. No, you just meet this description that was given by the victim. So this is all about narrowing down your potential uh, uh, criminals. So you have a better chance of catching them. That is not racism. You're allowed to profile people who match the correct description of potential criminals. And also, you know, a lot of this too even has to do with probabilities, right? People aren't necessarily racist because they make certain generalizations based on probabilities, right? Young black males uh, have a higher statistical probability, right, that they're going to commit crimes, right, than uh, older white females, right? I mean, it's just, those are just statistics. So, If somebody is more concerned when they see young black males coming down the street, that doesn't mean they're racist. They're just realists. You know, I've heard black people say that they are nervous when they see young black males uh, walking down the street. You know, I think even Bill Cosby once said that, you know, when he looks behind him, he's relieved when it's when they're white. Right. Because he recognizes probability. You know, I've uh, seen uh, or read articles about black cab drivers that don't like to pick up black passengers. They're not racist, but they don't want to go into a bad neighborhood. They're afraid they might get robbed. Right. There are black waitresses or and waiters who don't like to be served black couples because statistically they're not good tippers. These are just facts. Now, that doesn't mean that these people are racist because clearly they're the same race. They're not racist against their own race. But even if a white waiter, right, is, oh, here, I got to wait on uh, uh, the black customers and they think they have a higher likelihood of getting a bad tip. Those are judgments that are being made based on experiences. It's not based on racism. See, what would be racist is if somebody said, all black people are bad tippers because they're clearly not. There's going to be some black tippers, uh, black people that are very good tippers, right? But if you want to talk about averages, if somebody says, hey, based on my experience, right, black customers don't tip as well as white customers, if that's a fact statistically, then, you know, there's nothing racist about recognizing statistics and probability. You know, while I'm talking about tipping, you know, I, I was, you know, reading these studies where it shows that, you know, blacks are, are, are not as good tippers as whites. Also, Democrats are not nearly as good tippers as Republicans, which I think is very interesting. And of course, you know, you've got the Democrats are the ones that are demanding that the, the restaurant owners pay their uh, waiters and waitresses more money. Yet when it comes to actually contributing to that themselves, they don't want to do it. Right. So they want the the owner of the restaurant to pay higher wages, but they don't want to contribute themselves by giving a higher tip. But in any event, the point that I wanted to make is it didn't matter, even if George Zimmerman racially profiled Trayvon Martin because he happened to be a young black male and he knew that robberies had been committed in that neighborhood by young black males. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't excuse anything that Trayvon Martin did. 
He did not have to attack George Zimmerman. Right? He was not in any danger. He was not in any threat. And the other thing that I read about is that Zimmerman was chasing Martin. Zimmerman was stalking Martin. He was not. All the evidence shows that that was not the case. But even if that was the case, that doesn't justify the assault. All Martin had to do was go back home. There was no reason to turn around and confront uh, Zimmerman, let alone uh, break his nose, jump on top of him, pound his head into the ground and beat him and beat him uh, as he screamed for help. The last thing I wanted to talk about, I read this article about a guy in Iowa who was sentenced to uh, 15 years in prison, I think plus an extra year, uh, for the crime of stealing a gay pride flag and then lighting it on fire. And as a result of this, the guy's you know, got 16 years in jail. I mean, this is crazy. And the reason that the sentence is so harsh is because it was prosecuted as a hate crime, because burning a uh, gay pride flag is a sign of hatred. In fact, in this case, the, the, the perpetrator actually admitted to the police that the reason that he burned the flag was because he doesn't like gay people. Right. So he even admitted a lot of times with hate crimes. I mean, you know, you don't know. And in fact, hate crime shouldn't even be a crime for that reason, because you have to get into the mind of what's motivating somebody to commit a crime. Look, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm Jewish. Let's say somebody just, you know, jumps me and beats the crap out of me. Right. They assault me. I don't care if they're assaulting me because they don't like the way I look or because they just thought it would be fun and they had nothing else to do or because they hate Jews. To me, it doesn't matter, right? What matters is that I was assaulted. I don't care about why the person who assaulted me did it, or maybe they just did it to take my money, whatever. The, the, the person should be judged based on what they actually did, not based on what motivated them to do it, right? Unless you're talking about the difference between like premeditated murder and manslaughter, where somebody thinks it out in advance, plots out a murder, and then goes and commits it versus somebody in the heat of passion kills somebody. There's a big difference there, right? But if someone just decides, hey, I'm going to go out and beat up Peter Schiff because I don't like his politics, that's no different than saying, I'm going to go beat up Peter Schiff because I hate Jews. It doesn't matter. It's the same crime. Whatever damage is inflicted on me is the same. And so the criminals should be treated the same. In fact, what if I'm jumped by two guys, right? Two guys happen to jump me and they beat the crap out of me together, except one of them is punching me because he hates Jews. And the other one is punching me just because he thought it would be fun, right? But they both do the exact same thing. Why should the guy that hates Jews get an even harsher penalty than the other guy. It's immaterial. This is nonsense. But the other problem with hate crimes in particular is that hating is not a crime, right? The act of hating somebody is not illegal. In fact, everybody has a right to hate anyone they want. You can hate individuals and you can hate groups, right? What you can't do is act out on your hatred in a violent way. Right. You can't beat somebody up because you hate them. But the crime then is not hating them and beating them up. The crime is just beating them up. We don't have thought police. But if you hate somebody and just, you know, display your hatred in some manner, right, like you want to make a statement, like you want to burn a gay flag just to show everybody how much you hate gays. I mean, I hate gay people so much. I'm going to burn this flag. That's not a crime. Now, of course, you know, you can say, well, that's arson, right? And you stole the flag. And yes, that's part of the deal. They're saying this guy committed theft and he committed arson, right? Well, what did he steal? He stole a used flag. How much is that flag worth? Five bucks, 10 bucks? You're talking about petty theft. You don't go to jail for 15 years for committing petty theft. Now, they're saying it's arson. Oh, yeah, arson. Yeah, you burn a house down, that's arson, right? You set a fire a big fire, forest fire that burns down a community, that's arson. You light a $5 flag and it burns up, that's not arson. Who gives a damn about that? It's petty theft. Now they're saying, well, the guy's got some priors. Who cares about his prior convictions? Maybe he's rehabilitated, right? I, but you know what? You have to judge the offense on its own. 
15 years in prison. You know, if this guy didn't like gays before he burned that flag, what do you think he thinks of them now? Right. I mean, this type of law is actually fueling hatred. I'm sure a lot of people who were very tolerant of gay people, right, are losing their tolerance when they see stuff like this. Like, oh, my God, you burn a gay pride flag and you're in jail for 15 years. Nobody got hurt. Nobody was injured. The only injury was to the flag. All right, so the church, it was it was owned by a church. So they buy another flag for five, ten dollars. How much is a flag? Right? I mean, the irony of the whole thing is what if that was an American flag that he burned? Nobody would care. You could burn all the American flags you want, right? You can express that you hate America, and that's not a hate crime, but you can't express that you hate gays. Why not? I mean, are gays really that petty that they nobody can hate them? Right. I mean, they, anybody that expresses any hatred, oh no, they must go to jail. Right. Come on. You know, you, if you live in a free country, you have to tolerate intolerance. I've talked about this all the time. Right. And the way you combat that is you, you know, you, you turn the other cheek. You show that you're a good person. OK, you don't like me. Fine. Right. Live and let live. Right. Because that's what homosexuals are asking everybody else to do. Let us live our lives the way we want fine. Then they should extend the same courtesy to everybody else. Everybody gets to live their lives the way they want. And that means liking the people or the groups they want to like and hating the groups or the people they, they want to hate. And if they want to express their hatred, go right ahead and live with the consequence of that expression. Right. But what you can't do is you can't go out and commit a crime because you hate somebody. But if you commit a crime because you hate somebody, then what has to be punished is not your hatred but the crime.